Hello again. Hello, everybody. All right. So far, so good, everyone? All right. Great. So don't worry. Cocktails are right around the corner for you guys. Uh, but uh, once again, thank you for being here. If those of you just walked in, maybe, uh, my name is Andre Sospina, Director of Charter Membership and PitchDecks.com here at Family Office Club. Uh, can we please give a round of applause to our panel number six panelists? Thank you. Fantastic. So panel number six, emerging managers. Who's allocating to sub $100 million fund managers and why? Uh, so we'll start off uh, giving a, a quick one-minute introduction on each of our panelists, uh, and we will start here. Paul Marinelli, founder of Riverglades Family Offices, a boutique multifamily office in Naples, Florida. Uh, providing various services, but as it relates to this panel specifically, uh, I work to uh, source, curate, and facilitate private investments in sort of differentiated offerings. Great, thank you, Dan. All right, happy hour early. Who wants a hundred grand? <laughs> All right, first hand over here, Karen. Congratulations, hundred grand. <laughs> Round of applause. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, my public service announcement for the day. Anybody here with an old 401k or IRA, guess what? You can use those dollars to invest in private deals. So anything out here that you're talking about today, you can actually be invested with that. So that's what the 100 grand is for. Tax-free, penalty-free, all good. Um, and otherwise, from that, I've actually became a private investor uh, initially based on my retirement dollars from my early career at Merrill Lynch and General Electric. Uh, and frankly, I've decided to pay off up front. So the analogy, pay off the seed uh, and move everything into a Roth account. So I am in it to win it uh, and never pay taxes the rest of my life. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, great. And uh, Pepe. Hi. Well, I have a far more complex name than Pepe, but we'll <laughs> stick with that one. Um, Can you give it to us? I'm curious now. Jose Antonio Guevara Fernandez de Castro. All right. People call me Pepe. Uh, <laughs> and um, I am a trustee at the Communities Foundation of, of Texas. It's about a billion-dollar fund uh, based out of here in North Dallas. Sorry, Pepe, if you could just hold the mic. Sorry, closer. I'm a trustee at the Communities Foundation of Texas, about a billion-dollar fund out of the um, North, North Dallas. And I am the general partner of a multifamily office based on, on my family and other families. Uh, with a focus on long-term uh, multi-generational capital preservation strategies. So uh, this is a tough act to follow, but if, if I might ask everybody who wants to become rich by investing in medium-level, no cash flow technological investments, does anybody here want to become rich? Raise your hands. Yeah? Well, I'm going to disappoint all of you guys because we don't do that. We invest richest, rich people's money for multi-generational wealth preservation. So we watch paint dry, if you want to hear that. Thank you very much. Great, thank you. Um, so, once again, we're talking about merging managers. Um, I would love to get just a, a raise of hands and uh, just who would consider themselves here an emerging manager? Right now, if you can raise your hand. Fantastic, there's definitely a few more of you, because I know, because I've spoken to you. But um, to start off, uh, what is the ideal investment manager or investment opportunity that you would like to source 
by speaking here today. Uh, and please be as specific as possible. Uh, and we'll start with uh, Paul. For me, I think what I'm, I'm hoping to find is an emerging manager or a first-time fund manager, but one that's backed by or supported by uh, a family or individuals, GPs, that have extensive expertise in that particular field. That's one of the, the largest criteria um, for my firm and for the, the families and clients that I work with. Fantastic. Thank you. Uh, Dan? Mine, mine's big on track record, especially operations. I want somebody that has been boots on the ground that hasn't, uh, you know, graduated from the right schools, worked for the right companies, etc. Uh, it just doesn't pass the sniff test for me. I want somebody that's been dirty in this particular space uh, and proves that they can get it done, then feel very comfortable. How important is that college diploma? Uh, well, I mean, probably yeah. s some diploma, but it's more like where. Uh, I'll be honest with you. I mean, I did my undergrad at Wharton. That's nice. That's great. But that doesn't mean I'm going to put money in something that could be operationally intensive or, frankly, folks may have missed the boat on some very basic technical things that could have been done. Uh, so I actually, it, it's pretty irrelevant. Uh, I mean, I've invested with folks that, you know, dropped out and got a GED and worked their way through. So it's, it's becoming less and less. It just depends on the backstory and the why. Uh, and, and the reason I ask is sometimes in uh, some of your bios, um, I see it as like the first line in the bio. Um, not to say that's not important. I don't want to take away from anybody's like incredible education. Uh, but just I would move it lower down. I wouldn't put it as the first thing because I think that that perspective of, well, so what? Show me what you've done, um, you know, is, is more important. And, uh, you know, starting with why is really important and then starting with how and then, you know, then, you know, throwing that in there and where you went to school. But don't start it as your first sentence because then it could mean that you're trying to compensate for lack of experience in other areas. Pepe? Right. Um, Needless to say, you're betting on the jockey and not on the horse every time you invest. So in, uh, entrepreneur selection is fundamental. However, I'll, I'll disagree a little bit here just for the sake of having an argument. I, I've walked the halls of the ivy to ivory towers, and there's some pretty stupid people walking around, right? So there's really no guarantee. And often when you get a team from you know, whichever firm, you're, more, you're better off getting the A team from a smaller firm than the B team or a C team from a bigger firm. So I want a manager that can show up and in 45 seconds to a minute tell me, why is this a good business? What is a good industry? Why are you the right company to invest in the industry? What is this the right deal for me within that? And if you can pass those three tests relatively quickly, uh, then, we're, then you're the right manager. I couldn't care less. I mean, I was born in a small town south of Mexico. I could not care less what school you went to unless you're very capable of explaining those three questions to me in 45 seconds. Great, and uh, I want to kind of bounce off that, right, those 45 seconds. Uh, for someone that, um, you know, many emerging managers, they want that, like, introduction, right? Uh, but how does someone that, how does an emerging manager directly get those 45 seconds with you without being introduced by a third party, let's say? Well, I honestly think everyone gets 45 seconds. It's hard to get 45 minutes, then you need an introduction. But even the most obnoxious of wealth managers takes 45 seconds to delete an email or, you know, or a short voicemail. 
So if you really have it down to 45 seconds, I think you have an entry to almost anyone. There might be some pieces of that will actually derive value from not listening to people. I would argue that's not very smart. Wonder whether you want to invest with them or do you want them invested in your cap deal. So I would say it's not a, as big a challenge I find uh, might be projecting uh, to get 45 seconds out of somebody in an elevator, in a email, on a voicemail, or in a short uh, approach. Great. Dan, so how, how can someone kind of get those 45 seconds with you? Um, you know, and feel free to throw in there, come to more of these events as a, as a strategy. Yeah, I, I was exactly going to say that. I mean, provide your own, uh, make your own luck uh, where you want to be. I, and I, I, I get it. For some folks, especially starting out, uh, some of these could be pricey with the travel, et cetera. Uh, just to be around or tangentially around. A lot of times, especially for larger shows, if you want the best bang for your buck, there might be two or three events combined. Uh, you know, stay at the nice hotel, hang out in the lobby for a while. Uh, also, too, I, I mentioned earlier, to provide a piece of education, uh, maybe to the group, the sponsor, uh, something, once again, if it's not at the main floor, maybe downstairs, you're offering what you feel is important, and this could catch the ear of somebody that might say, hey, this was pretty cool that I heard at lunchtime. Maybe we bring a few of my friends, and th that has played out a few times in my career. Excellent. And, and so I just want to bounce all that, the education piece. Can you elaborate a little bit more what you mean by that? Yeah, for sure. Uh, or examples that you've seen even, like that caught your attention in that's in terms of delivering educational value? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it helps have doing a little research on the person that you are targeting or the group. Uh, you know, obviously on a personal front, probably all been afflicted with cancer. Knowing somebody that's gone through it recently, their antenna is going to be more up. You have an idea that can go into a pharmaceutical firm or something that can help in this process being aware of the situation and talking about the how the end results can help save time money make it easier from an emotional perspective uh, that could turn the 45 seconds to maybe 45 minutes got it so you're saying educational value in when they're face to face with you as well great well, or i i would just offer you know uh, instead of offering educational opportunity you know offer preferred terms um, if you're approaching, you know, a large single-family office and someone with a lot of money and you need them to take a, you know, a, a shot at uh, investing in you and what you're bringing to the table, I don't think you can dictate the same terms as you could if you're, you know, Carlisle or whoever else you want to be. Um, and sometimes that's what it takes to get that first, you know, relationship is approaching someone and saying, look, you know, uh, no management fee and I'm only taking 5% carry and I'm targeting X, Y, and Z. You know, talk about 45 seconds. If you came to me with something like that, you know, great. Or I'll pay you to advise me while you invest $5 million. You know, I, something like that would, would get my attention right away. Now, it might only move it to the 45 minutes, but you'd at least get that 45 seconds. And um, how important do you think, I mean, once you meet that, um, fund manager, maybe they did pique your interest. Uh, what kind of due diligence are you doing at that point, maybe even before the meeting or after the meeting? Are you going on their website? Are you checking out social media profiles? Like what kind of, how in depth are you going to, to really research this individual and their team? We'll start with Paul. Uh, I, yeah, I'd say all of that and um, you know, professional background checks. So uh, yeah, especially if it's a large commitment, someone's asking for a quarter million dollars or something, probably not worth the time. But if you're asking for a 10, 20, $50 million commitment, 
it, it's going to be the full the full background check and verification of sources and speaking with uh, past um, either employers or uh, investors or whatever the situation may be. Great. Yeah, I'm piggybacking on that. I think LinkedIn is wonderful for that spirit to maybe see somebody that tends to have a pretty long tenure but was only associated with them for three months or six months to find the reason behind it. And that's, uh, yeah. Great. Thank you. So I have a bit of a different approach, very empirical approach. Uh, we only write checks that are 5 to 25 million just to justify the costs of, of starting up. But I never do that on the first year. The first year, I always put down some of my own personal money. So I might pay somebody 100000 to go do whatever you think you're doing. And then as you come back next year, if you actually came through and did it, and I've seen you through the thick and thin, then I'll write a big check. But I, I, I never, I mean, I don't think there's any way other to learn how to play the drum than to actually playing the drum. There's no theory to it. So go out and do it. Do it for a couple of years. Show me who you are through the thick and thin, and then we'll write a big check. I have the joy of not having a fund behind me and a J curve and a clicking talk, a ticking clock, so I recognize I'm at a bit of an uh, advantageous position from that perspective. Great, and that was actually going to be my next question. Um, in terms of just minimum investment that you would allocate towards an emerging fund manager, what's the lowest that you would go? You know, do you apply a similar stat strategy of giving you know, a certain amount of capital first before really going in big? Um, Dan? Yeah, I like to start small with my own money also before, uh, before going in. No, I, I don't have a hard number on it. Um, probably depend on the asset class. Okay. Any yeah. particular asset classes you're looking at right now that you keep your eyes on more than others? Uh, I mean, I'm always looking at different real estate. I'm kind of up and down. Obviously, storage is my main one. Uh, so this one biotech thing just caught me recently, and the people around and the more I talk to. So I'm not saying I'll probably stay in there. It's just this was just a very unique uh, one-off. Great. For me and, and for the clients that I work with, I think it's proportionate to the amount of risk, you know, or perceived risk um, in that investment. So to echo the, the asset class idea, if it's an emerging manager, you know, hedge fund that's doing long-only U.S. equity, we can probably get a little more comfortable more quickly. Um, you know, but if it's some venture, startup, one product, biotech type of thing, um, you know, we're probably going to want to put in a little bit to that to that A round or something, and see where it goes, and get to know each other uh, a little bit before the the bigger amounts come. So it may not be what's a minimum um, type of size; it, it may be what's the ultimate size that we would contribute. So instead of starting with you know five to twenty-five, it's maybe that's where we want to be, but I'm only starting with five hundred thousand or two fifty. Will that work to get me comfortable to do the 25 or 50 later? Got it. And um, I'm going to ask questions from the audience here just shortly, but I did have a question in terms of asset classes that you potentially focus on and that you keep an eye out for. In terms of, oh, Paul, sorry. No, so, um, <laughs> so, you know, representing various families, uh, I, I am looking um, at most asset classes. You know, I think someone asked me earlier, and I said, as long as it's legal, and it's going to make money. Um, we're happy to look at it. I know in the family office space, a lot of families will say that, um, but they really only want to do what they're comfortable with. 
So where I kind of step in is I'll vet pre-qualify a lot of those other things on behalf and go to those families that I know probably should do it but, but wouldn't um, to make those. So, you know, we've looked at uh, things across the board, uh, but again, sort of the key distinguisher for me is not necessarily the asset class. It's can I get comfortable that what you're saying you're going to do, you will be able to do over what we're facing or whatever, whatever we will be facing the next, say, three to seven years. Um, it's not the ultimate return. It's sort of that risk-reward balance. And does it match what I think may unfold uh, in the near future? And that is based off the due diligence that you do and the background checking, et cetera, would you say? Yes. Feeling yeah. that they'll deliver on what they say. Well, and making sure that their background, the investment strategy, their you know, uh, experience and past uh, success all align. Great. And uh, Pepe, can you elaborate a little bit on the asset classes you look at? Yes. on what have you? So uh, in our case, it's a bit of a different perspective. Um, we are invested in long-term you know, cross-generational wealth preservation. And, and that spans a variety of asset classes. But so if you have a website, it's very easy to, it's a bit of, you'll know it when you see it. If you have a website, we're not going to invest with you guys. Uh, but um, we have telecom infrastructure, forestry, water rights, mineral rights, um, some intellectual property. So things that will last for many, many years. And um, they're, they, we believe well, they'll stand the test of time uh, through that. So very, very different approach than anybody else. And, um, and uh, we are... To try to answer the question and not ramble on, we can get comfortable with almost any asset if it proves that, if it proves to have those characteristics. We do, however, have a little bit more of a, um, some, me personally and some of the families who I invest alongside with do have a bit of a, a more, um, what's the word? idiosyncratic view around some industries like alcohol or tobacco or arms, which we wouldn't do. But other than that, being legal, but, but, but we do have a little bit of a angle to it. Stan? I think one of the things for my marketing friends out there, uh, the TAM and the SAM. So the TAM's a total available market. Uh, and this number's huge, in any, whether it's alcohol sales, uh, you know, cannabis, which you can argue is legal or not, depending on what state you're in. Anything else in general is always a huge number, but if the folks, either them personally or on their team, they haven't had the serviceable market who they think this product or service will sell to in a certain time, I'm extremely cautious because this is a, you know, some feel like I'm talking to a freshman here, you know, just say it's a big market. Yeah, but how have you played in that before? How have you broken in? When will you break even? So real basic sort of kind of marginal or break even or when something needs to be approved by you know, regulatory body, how long that takes, are some pretty good milestones that I would expect to see way up front. Great, excellent, thank you. Uh, do we have any questions from the audience? All right, gentlemen here in the front. The microphone's coming your way right now, okay? Some people call it cryptocurrency. Uh, is there any affinity whatsoever for a legitimate digital currency in the market, in you guys' opinion? I don't oh. want to speak for the whole market, but I'll speak for my clients. And, 
you know, outside of a passing interest, no one's really um, pursued it. However, we have looked at other asset classes or potential investments that we hope might accomplish, you know, the same goals of, of a cryptocurrency. Such as? The investments. Yeah, okay. uh, various, various metals um, that we've looked at in commodities, not necessarily just gold, um, but plays off of gold, uh, some of the uh, EV, some of the electric battery components and metals, um, things that are sort of a, a secular, but yet you have something physical that you can hang on to. A currency redeemable in gold, which is a little different idea and concept, not being crypto because it's not secretive, but being digital, but having an asset redeemable quality that also would have exponential growth potential through other assets such as energy, uh, precious metal mining, real estate, technology, et cetera. I think on real estate, uh, so two things on crypto. One, I, I think there's a use for it in certain parts of the world where it's probably gonna be better than some paper money or relying on treasury. Uh, Venezuela is a decent example where this actually could be where people can survive and hopefully have goods that are there that they can buy in the future. So I think there's an altruistic uh, need from that standpoint. In terms of uh, the developed world, I, I do think in real estate, almost like a, I don't think you're going to be able to redeem it for the actual asset, but I think it's going to give much like how crowdfunding has given access to folks that were previously just to accredited investors. I think crypto, well, I should say I know a bit how crypto is playing in so average Joe Jane America could invest in larger commercial projects, much like they could do on a crowdfunding campaign now. And the digital aspect of it is attractive to certain investors uh, to the standpoint that some big banks are starting to get behind this. It's not going to be everybody. It's going to be early adopters. Uh, I don't think it's ever going to play out to the mass market, but I think there's going to be enough where like a Bitcoin, Ethereum, some larger Fortune 100, especially on the financial institution side, are going to back this where the asset is something hard like real estate or gold. I guess the question is, do you see family offices or private equity firms getting involved in the initiation of something of that quality? I think there can, well, th it's being considered now. I don't, much like, I don't think it's going to be a huge check. You're probably going to get one or two personalities that are going to throw a lot of money at it, like anything. Uh, but I'd say, f you know, is it safe to say that, you know, a half a point or 1% of flow may go towards it? Yeah. For a few family offices, it could make sense. Well, if, if hello? Yeah. Well, if somebody's going to get rich with it, it's not going to be me. Yeah, I figured uh, Pepe's answer would be that because you're focused on more of the, the wealth preservation side. I know that I ask that question a lot to any family offices that I get a chance to. And I'd say that probably about 10 to 20% have, um, but a really small amount of capital and also the ones I've talked to and investors, not just family offices, but they've done it based off their, um, off a recommendation from a very trusted advisor. And that was the, the common theme that I saw. Where I was like, yeah, I put some money in there because a trusted advisor, not even an advisor, like specifically use the word trusted, advisor like told me to and I did and I had huge returns. You know, so 
it was almost like something like uh, Dan said, like it's going to be a very small percent. Uh, and then also they're not going to try to be the experts in the space. So a lot of times the question is, well, do you have any investors that invest in crypto? It's like, well, investors that may be open to hearing about it. But I think if I was in that space trying to, alloc trying to raise capital for a currency, I would go for the advisor now after all of this because I want to talk to the person that has influence over the capital allocator because especially family offices and investors that just don't deal in that space because no one really deals in that space, um, then you want to talk to the person that has the influence over the investor, not the investor so much directly, which is the intake that I'm getting from asking a lot about it because I have personally invested money into cryptocurrency, seen great returns, but obviously I don't have a hundred million dollar fund, you know, and one throwing in one percent. Um, so it's always very curious for me. Uh, I have the time to do my own due diligence on it, uh, but at the same time, uh, institutional investor, investor with over a hundred million dollars in assets under management, the ones that I've seen invest has been based off the advice of a trusted advisor. So go for the advisors and have them influence their investors would be my recommendation. Uh, do we have another? Question from the audience. Okay. Uh, so I guess um, to just wrap up here, uh, the last question I have for you guys and, and one that's really important to me is, um, you know, how important is it for people to get out there and to meet investors face to face versus the email templates and the phone calls. You know, you guys come to events, so obviously you guys see value in it as well, investing your time to come out here for a full day. Um, but, you know, do you see value in it? How much and how often should it be done? I think there's incredible value, um, whether I'm allocating capital or I'm helping an entrepreneur which I've already invested in and therefore we're trying to you know, raise capital from other sources. The 30 minutes or the 20 minutes, whatever you get with an investor are incredibly valuable. Two things might happen as he asks you questions. You might know the answer to those questions and therefore you know that you're tackling the key issues in your business, or you might not, and therefore realize the soft underbelly of your investment thesis. So don't think about it as, man, I had all the questions. Actually, the better answer, the better interactions are those where you bounce your idea off of very smart people who are making genuinely interested questions because they're evaluating investing with you. Those questions are worth a million bucks. So throw, that, throw those questions often and frequently to everyone and learn from that, even if you're not raising capital all the time. Great. Thank you, Dan. Yeah, this is great. It's actually my third time in Dallas in a month, uh, second time here. I, I think it's essential, yeah, to talk to folks. Everybody, I think, has a, an amazing skill but also a passion that you can pull out. And the it's funny who gravitates it's actually really good so last show that i was here uh probably the most value was well you know i used to live in new york and i love getting a shoe shine so put my it was 10 o'clock at night but i don't have boots but put my shoes up and uh as we were talking what you know what came out and it took a while uh the gentleman who was shining my shoes uh his son's in the nfl 
and his wife, who was there and was having a casual conversation, has a, an amazing network here. Uh, and this is at a you know pretty top hotel here locally. So it took a little bit to pull their passion, but what can come out of there? And the other folks that were just kind of casually going around uh, definitely made it worthwhile. Uh, and likewise, I think when folks bring their family, I met another person I talked to on the phone twice. We probably lived two blocks from each other, never saw each other, and I met him and his 15-year-old son here today um, at the lunch table. So needless to say, this would probably be, this would be much more fruitful because we had this passing than otherwise. Thank you, Paul. And yeah, I mean, I think a big part, especially for emerging managers, is going to be the trust, right? We were talking about, well, how do you get your foot in the door? How do you make an introduction? How do you get them to give you money? Um, it all comes down to the trust. And spending that time face-to-face -face is, is probably one of the biggest things that especially an emerging manager can bring to the table uh, in developing that relationship. And so I'd expect, you know, an email, a phone call is great to start the conversation, but expect to meet in person go to things like this. Uh, I know for my clients, we're gonna have multiple meetings in person uh, just to make sure what you told us three months ago matches what you told us six months ago matches what you told us before that. Um, so I, I, I think it's a great thing and I think it, you should play it up as an emerging manager because a lot of the bigger firms are going to send uh, their sales force. You know, and, and I don't want a wholesaler coming to talk to, to me. I want the, the GPs. I want the people uh, pulling the strings and making decisions. And again, as an emerging manager, I'm making the assumption that's, that's who's going to be at these meetings. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much uh, for your insight in this panel. Uh, if we could please give a round of applause to our panelists.